Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 52. And when they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and he was, as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you and throwing off his cloak. He sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let's pray together. Jesus, you told your disciples, if anyone would be great, We must serve, we must sacrifice, we must follow you. Lord, we live in a a world that um, so many people are just fighting for greatness, fighting for power, fighting for comfort, fighting for rule and authority, just fighting. Lord, you've called your people to serve, to lay down our lives, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow you. You said that the way to true greatness was not through fighting, but through serving. And Lord, you've given us the the, the greatest example of that, that you, the son of man, you came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom. But I pray that 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 we would take that to heart. Lord, that your, your death was a ransom. It paid the penalty for us paid the price for our freedom. 
Lord, I pray that we would use that freedom not only to serve you, but to serve one another, knowing, God, that, that you said that if anyone gives even a cup of cold water in your name, they've, they've done it for you. And so, Lord, would you teach us from your word? Would you give us hearts that serve as your heart was one that served? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you ask a child when they are young what they want to be when they grow up, you will probably get an amazing answer. Because kids want to do the craziest, most wonderful, incredible things imaginable. I remember driving with my mom in the car and we were listening to the radio and someone on the radio was talking about uh, NASA's projections for when they would probably land a human on Mars. Um, the Mars rover had just, the first Mars rover had just landed on Mars the summer before my freshman year. And so here I am as a freshman driving to school and hearing the people on the radio talk about this, that talk about, and I have no idea what their source of information was, but they said the first person who will set foot on Mars is most likely only a freshman in high school at that time. And my eyes like lit up and I was convinced for about 30 seconds that I was going to be the first person to walk on Mars. I was already planning like Neil Armstrong, like my, my quote that would go down in history, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And I, I turned to my mom and I said, mom, that's going to be me. And she said, don't get your hopes up. Astronauts have to have good grades. I was basically on Mars and my mom ripped me back down to earth. And then I remembered watching Apollo 13 and it freaked me out and I was like, it's not worth it, right? It's too, it's too much. There's, there's, I got scared. It wasn't worth it. So I think every child, every kid at some point wants to be something great, wants to do something great. And here's the thing, many will grow up to achieve it. Many will grow up to achieve great things, but still others, when they find out the cost required, when they find out what it's going to take to accomplish it, they back off their aspirations little by little. Maybe you can remember what you wanted to be when you grew up. Maybe you can remember the things that you wanted to accomplish. And then in life, as you experienced difficulty, as you experienced the cost required, that that dream just began to change and, and, and maybe, maybe you've settled for something other than what you thought you would do or what you long to do. Many believers begin their Christian life wanting to do great things and many will. Many will accomplish wonderful things for Jesus, but sometimes when we're confronted with the cost required, we scale our expectations back just little by little. And in our text, Jesus gives a roadmap for true greatness. But the cost is higher than we might think. But the good news is that Jesus has paid the price on our behalf. And so by the time we come to our text, by the time we come to Mark chapter 10, verse 32, there's this buzz going around about Jesus. They're, they've heard the stories They've, they've heard what Jesus is able to do. The stories start spreading. They know all the talk and there's this hope that Jesus might be the Messiah. 
He might be the one that they've been waiting for. And if he is, then according to all the stories that they've been taught, according to their hopes and their dreams and all of their expectations, Jesus is going to Jerusalem because he is intent on starting a war with Rome. That's what they've been taught. They've been taught that Messiah was going to come and destroy the Romans. And so they've been uh, oppressed by the Romans. The Romans have been oppressing God's people for far too long. And so if the kingdom of God was here, if Messiah was here, they expected Messiah to wage war with the kingdom that had been keeping them under their thumb. And so some in the crowd are amazed. It says that those in the crowd, they, they were amazed. And, and this is it. It's finally happening. It's, it's like the, the children in the schoolyard who've been picked on by the bully for, for way too long. And Jesus is the older, stronger, uh, big brother who's finally coming to set things right. And so you can see like children following him going like, get them, Jesus. Yeah, you got them. Like they're no, they're no match for you. And so they're, 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 they're amazed. They're excited. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. This is it. This is, this is war. But some who followed were afraid. Some were amazed and some were afraid. Why? Because if, if, this is going, if there's going to be a war, if there's going to be a war, then, then some, the, something doesn't sit right by the way Jesus has been talking about it. See, he's not talking strategy. He hasn't been training them with, with swords and spears. He's not reading Sun Tzu's Art of War by the campfire at night. He's talking actually quite a bit about his own death. Jesus has already told the disciples twice what was going to happen to him. That he was going to, to suffer and die. That the Son of Man would be killed. Not, not destroy Rome, but that he would die at their hands. And so he's warned them that, the, that as the Messiah, his mission is to suffer and die. And so they're sitting around going, Jesus is the most pessimistic Messiah ever. He's not, he's not talking about some great conquest. He's talking about getting conquered. And so he takes his disciples aside again and gives them more details about what's going to happen. He does say, I'm going to Jerusalem, but I'm not the one bringing the fight. So when I get there, they're going to bring the fight against me. The chief priests and the scribes, the leaders of the Jewish people, not Rome, the leaders, the religious leaders of the Jewish people, I am going to be betrayed into their hands and they're going to condemn me to death. And then they're going to deliver me to the hands of the Gentiles, to the Romans. And they are going to put me to death. He was going to be condemned by the religious leaders and killed by Rome. But then three days later, he says, he will rise. And every time Jesus predicts his death, the disciples do something dumb. And this is no different. The first time Peter rebukes him and says, by no means, you're never going to do this, Jesus. And Jesus rebukes him back. The, the second time he, he, uh, he tells them he's going to die, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest and shutting down this unknown exorcist because he wasn't following them. And Jesus continues to have to come alongside them and teach them what it means to be a disciple of Christ, to deny yourself, to pick up your cross and follow him. And so, so it's, it's the same thing here. The disciples respond foolishly again. James and John take him aside and they say, they say, Jesus, we want you to do for us anything we ask of you. 
which is an amazing tactic. I'm going to ask you a question, but before I do, say yes. And Jesus is like, how about no? Um, And he says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? See, they want to sit at Jesus' right hand and his left in his kingdom. These are the two greatest positions of power next to the throne of the king. And so they want seats of honor and power when the kingdom comes. They believe that Jesus will sit on his throne. They believe that he is the king. And so when he does, they want the right to sit next to him. And so they completely ignored his predictions of his own death, and they are chasing after fame and glory for themselves. They're trying to procure for themselves their own exaltation while Jesus is preparing to die. And so the rest of the disciples are furious. The rest of the disciples are indignant at James and John, not that they would do something so atrocious, but because they would beat them to the punch. They thought of it first. And so they are furious. They want the seats of honor. They want the glory. They want the fame. They beat them to the punch. And so Jesus has to take all of them together again, take them aside and tell them what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. He gives them the meaning of greatness. You ever notice that Jesus affirms the desire for greatness? It's a good thing. It's a good desire. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. He actually gives them instructions on how to pursue greatness. It's a good desire. He affirms the desire to be great. So we can't demonize the desire for greatness. It's not a bad desire. But it's easy for us to forget this in the church sometimes. It's easy for us to forget this. See, humility is such a virtue in the church and for good reason that we often forget it's okay to be good at things. It's actually okay to be good at things. It's okay to use the gifts that God has given you. This is why he gave them to you. He gave you gifts so that you could glorify him through them. And he said his disciples would do great things. Jesus actually said that his disciples would do greater things than he. It's not wrong to pursue great things. It's not wrong to desire to be used in in great ways. Sometimes we feel like the only only time our, our good deeds really count is when they're done in secret. Right? I remember one time at, at home really wanting to, before my parents were saved, really wanting to show them that my life was different, that, I'd, that, that, that Jesus was transforming my life. And so the first thing I could think of was, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the dishes without being asked. That's how like, selfish I was. Like, and literally, okay, literally my mom got home and she said, asked my dad, did you do the dishes? And he goes, no. Asks my older brother, did you do the dishes? He's like, no. Skips me. Asks my younger brother, did you do the dishes? No. My sister, did you? No. Adam, you didn't do the dishes. That's how selfish I was, like just not serving. The little things, and my mom's like, what? And it, so why didn't you say anything? And in my mind, I'm like, because I don't want to lose my treasures. Thanks for finding me out. All my treasures in heaven just disappeared in that moment. Now Jesus is standing there shaking his head. Better luck next time, Adam. 
We think the only time our good deeds actually count for something is if they're, they're perfectly secret and no one ever finds out. But God gave us gifts to glorify himself, not to glorify us, but to glorify himself. And so if we're not careful, we may find ourselves resisting good opportunities to pursue great things for fear of being seen as, as prideful or self-promoting. We can actually resist the opportunities to step into the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. See, God isn't glorified in your gifts if you don't give, if you don't use the gifts that he's given you. And so Jesus affirms the goodness of greatness, but then he adjusts the definition of greatness. See, greatness is not about ruling others. Greatness is defined by serving others. Jesus said that the greatest will be the slave of all. Greatness is, is found in the willingness to take the most humble position, the, the, the lowliest servant in a household, not to remain unseen and in the shadows and in, un, ineffective, but to serve even the lowliest of servants. And so this definition of greatness turns the world on its head. Because empires are established by someone's ability to crush the opposition. And empires fall by their inability to fend off, uh, to fend off oppressors. And so ever since sin entered the world, humans have continually sought to exalt themselves at the expense of others. Since, the, since sin entered the world, People oppress people, nations oppress nations. This is the way human empires rule, but this is not the way that God rules. See, James and John believe that Jesus is the king. They believe that he is the Messiah, and they believe that he is going to establish his kingdom. But the problem is they think that Jesus is going to rule just like every other king rules. They want the same systems. They don't actually want the world to change. They want the same systems. They just want to be the ones running the system. They want the same kind of kingdom that they've experienced in the world, but they want to be the ones on the throne. And so we see leadership transitions like this in the world all the time. We see people rise up against an oppressive regime only to become more oppressive than the people before them. So because humans don't have a problem with oppression as long as we're the ones on top. We don't have a problem with oppression. We just don't like being oppressed. And the minute we're given the opportunity to turn the tables, we will because we are continually living by the same rules of a worldly kingdom when Jesus wants us to operate by his kingdom standards. And so James and John, they're not wrong in their desire to pursue greatness, but their motives are out of whack. Their motives are off. They need a shift in their thinking. They need new categories for what constitutes true greatness. And so the, the, the great life is not a life that rules others, but one that serves others. And Jesus gets to their heart by asking them a question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? I think this is a great question for us. This, this question, what do you want Jesus to do for you? Because it gets to our hearts. 
And James and John are not the only ones in this passage that Jesus asks this question to. He also asks blind Bartimaeus the same question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And the reason this this question is great because it gets at our motivations. It unearths what lies beneath even our greatest desires. And so in our text, we see that there are various motives for greatness. James and John have a desire to rule that comes from pride. This question, what do you want Jesus to do for you? It helps us to understand what we're really pursuing. Because if you remember last week, we talked about the rich young ruler. Many of us can approach Jesus like the the, the rich young ruler. We end up, we refuse Jesus to retain what we truly desire. But James and John, they're approaching Jesus to use him to attain what they truly desire. And in both situations, it's idolatry. The rich young man, he walks away sad because he refuses to give up his wealth for Jesus. And James and John, they're coming to Jesus and treating him like a stepping stone just to get to what they truly want. But Jesus asks this question of Bartimaeus. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus simply responds, let me recover my sight. He says, I just want to see Now think about this. What is a greater feat? What what is a greater request? James and John and Bartimaeus, they all believe that Jesus is the king. James and John believe he's the Messiah. Bartimaeus calls him the son of David, which means he believes that he is the rightful king of Israel. And what is a greater feat for a king? To assign two seats at a table? Or to give sight to the blind. See, Bartimaeus' request is actually the greater request. Bartimaeus actually wants something so much greater than what James and John ask for. It's so much more difficult. It's so much more impossible than anything they could even think of. And instead of receiving a lecture about cups and baptisms, as James and John did, he receives his sight. He asks for something so much greater than John and James. They get corrected and Bartimaeus gets what he wants. It's not because his request is more reasonable. It's because of his motives. James and John, in their pride, they sought glory. But Bartimaeus, in his humility, simply seeks deliverance. Bartimaeus comes in humility and desperation. He still wants something for himself. It's not wrong to want something for yourself. Bartimaeus wants his sight. He doesn't want to be blind anymore. He wants to be restored. He wants to be made whole. He could have asked for the same thing as James and John. He could have have had a Cinderella story of being a blind beggar, exalted to the throne. Jesus, I want to sit at your right hand. Bartimaeus could have treated Jesus like a genie in the same way, but he doesn't. He submits himself to his king and he asks to be restored. Church, what do you want Jesus to do for you? What great thing could you ask Jesus today to do for you? We may not ask to rule kingdoms or to sit on thrones and have servants, 
But many of us still want the life of a king or the life of a queen. We want the easy life. We want the comfortable life. We want the life that's not accountable to anyone else. We don't want to report to others. We want what we want when we want it. And even if you say, we can say, God, I don't care if people know my name. I don't need the spotlight. I don't need to be up front. I don't want the acclaim. That's fine. You, you don't have to want these things. You don't have to want your, your name and lights. You don't have to want fame and fortune. You don't have to want those things. You don't have to want people knowing that you're great. You don't have to want these things. However, do you have the expectation that people should give you what you want? Whatever it is. Do you think that you are entitled to the private life? Sometimes people pursue their name and lights because they want the the, the glory that comes with it. Sometimes people pursue the shadows because they want the comfort that comes with it. See, God bless those who are content to serve behind the scenes. God has gifted many people to serve in this way, but some resist the gifts that God has given because they don't want to be seen. They don't want the the difficulty that comes with that. And so do we expect others to serve us by giving us the privacy that we desire? See, some want the kingdom and comfort of kings and queens, but some want the kingdom and comfort of the recluse. It's a very comfortable life, not having to depend on anybody else. But Jesus doesn't call us to be comfortable. He calls us to service in this text. He calls us to sacrifice. Jesus redefines the meaning of greatness and he exposes our motivation for seeking greatness. But then he provides the example of true greatness. If we want to know what it means to be great, we need to look to the mission of Jesus because Jesus is on a mission. Jesus, in this text, his face is set toward Jerusalem. He is, he's on a mission. He's no longer walking with his disciples or walking behind his disciples. He's walking ahead of his disciples. He is on a mission and nothing is going to stop him. He is going to Jerusalem. He is going to suffer. He is going to die. He is the the king of kings and the Lord of lords. His mission is to rule the world. And yet his methods of rule are not harsh. They're not oppressive. They're not violent. He's not like the so-called rulers of the Gentile nations who dominate those who are subject to them. He he rules with self-sacrificial love. He is on a mission. His mission is to love you. His mission is is to serve, to lay down his life for you. And to accomplish this mission, his face is is set toward Jerusalem, not to drive out the Romans with a sword, not to sit in luxury and to be served by all, but to serve and to drive away sin. He rules the world by serving the world in the way that we need it most. See, Rome is not the problem. Sin is the problem. Church, people are not the problem. Sin is the problem. Politics are not the problem. Republicans are not the problem. Democrats are not the problem. 
Sin is the problem. Our culture is not the problem. Sin is the problem. Ethnicity and cultural background is not the problem. Sin is the problem with the world. Jesus has come not to drive out a particular people group from ruling over another people group. He has come to drive sin out from all people and establish reconciliation with him and unity with one another. Sin is the problem. Stop pointing the finger at one another and accusing others of being the problem. You are not the problem. Sin is the problem. And Jesus wants to drive it from your heart. Sin is the problem. He was on a mission not to overthrow Caesar, but to overthrow the real tyrant of sin and Satan and death that had infiltrated all of, human, all of humanity. Imagine the shock of the disciples as Jesus is talking about what is going to happen to him. And he's talking about suffering at the hands of the religious leaders of Israel. That sin and Satan and death, the corruption that had invaded the world, didn't just apply to Rome. It applied to their own people. It applied to their own hearts. See, Jesus' mission was not just to drive out one oppressive people to replace it with another oppressive people. He came to drive out sin and Satan and death. And so this was his mission, not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom. He came to give his life as a ransom. See, as a ransom, Jesus' death purchased the freedom of those who were in bondage to sin. As a ransom, his death paid the penalty that we owe for our rebellion against God, for building our own rival kingdoms, for setting up our own kingdoms that oppress people and and war against God. And so instead of coming... to to crush the human kingdoms of this world, Jesus was crushed by the kingdoms of this world. He was betrayed by those that he came to save. The religious leaders were the ones that gave him to the Romans to be crucified. But then three days later, he rises from the dead. He conquers the grave. See, the greatest weapon that the kingdom of darkness has, the greatest weapon that, that our, 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 our human kingdoms have is death. It's, 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 it's the greatest weapon that we have. And the, by the threat of death, we can get a lot of people to do what we want for us if they're afraid to die. But Jesus submits himself to death. He allows the enemy to do its worst so that when he rises from the dead three days later, he can prove that even the greatest weapon of the enemy has no power over Jesus. And he gives that power to you. 
You do not need to be afraid of death. You do not need to submit yourself to anyone's tyranny because you have resurrection life and have the ability to defeat death in the power and person of Jesus Christ. If you through faith have put your trust in Jesus, you do not submit to the tyranny of anyone, but Jesus has given you new life in his kingdom. He has given you resurrection life because his death was a ransom. And so Jesus accomplishes his mission. He goes to Jerusalem. He accomplishes it. He has paid our ransom. And so to reject Jesus is to say to Jesus, thanks, but no thanks. I will pay my own ransom. Thanks for everything you've done, but no thank you. I will pay with my own life. And if you persist in rejecting Jesus, you will pay your own ransom for eternity. But Jesus has paid it to set us free. See, the world can't understand how how death can be victory. The world can't understand how how the death of of Christ is actually accomplishes his glory. But the apostle Paul, looking back on Jesus' humble sacrifice, says this in Philippians chapter 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of his humility, because of his service, because of his obedience to death, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It was because of his humility. It was because of his service. It was because of his sacrifice that he was exalted that he was given the name that is above every name. And Jesus proves what it means to be great. And so he he accomplishes his mission by by, uh, giving his life as a ransom. But then he also gives us the invitation to follow him in his mission, to follow him in, in, in his true greatness, not as the world defines it, but as God has defined it. It's the way of service, the way of self-sacrifice, the way of humility. And in the end, it is the way of glory. The way of service and the way of sacrifice is the way to glory. See, Jesus uses this, this symbolism of the cup and the baptism to describe the suffering he would endure. He asks James and John, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized in the baptism with which I am baptized? And it's, it's referring to the cup of suffering that he would encounter. We would see him talking about the cup again in the garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there be any other way, make this cup pass from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And so he asks James and John, you want seats of glory? Are you able 
to endure what I am going to endure? Are you able to be immersed into, baptized into death as I will be baptized? They think he's talking about some great, glorious uh, 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 martyr's death, someone dying for their king. And they're like, yes, Jesus, we are able. We will die for you. And Jesus says, you know what? You will drink the cup that I drink. And you will be baptized into the baptism with which I am baptized. You will encounter hardship. You will encounter suffering. James would be the first apostolic martyr. James, the brother of John, would be the first of the apostles to be killed for his faith. John would would live a long life and eventually die of old age. But what he encountered, what he suffered through life, was he suffered a great deal. And he says, you will drink the cup. You will be baptized in my baptism. And this is true of all of Jesus' disciples, not just the 12, but you and I. If we're following Jesus together, if we follow him, we must follow him not only in the way that he treated the world. See, sometimes we, we, we minimize following Jesus to the way Jesus treated the world. I will treat the world. Jesus loved and sacrificed, and so I'm going to love and sacrifice, and that's great. But following Jesus also means following him in the way he was treated by the world. To endure well, to endure hardship and suffering faithfully, to not shy away from it and and run from our Jerusalem, so to speak, but to set our faces toward it and receive it as it comes. To endure hardship. And this is true greatness. The reason that we can serve others is because Jesus has served us. The reason that we don't need to be afraid of what may come is because Jesus paid our ransom and so our lives are no longer ours. We've been bought with a price and our identity is secure. We belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one with resurrection power who has promised to raise our lifeless bodies from the dead. We are free from building our own kingdoms, free from pursuing comfort, free from pursuing our own rule over others. Our our, our comfort comes from knowing that the suffering in this life will not have the last word. The suffering that you're encountering today, the suffering that you have been encountering, it will not have the last word. The reason today you can face whatever is in front of you, the reason you can face what comes tomorrow or what comes next year, the reason that you can face insecurity and uncertainty and fear is because you belong to the king and he has given you resurrection life. The reason that we can suffer well is because Jesus has suffered on our behalf. And as he was raised from the dead, so will we. We belong to Jesus. We've been united to the one who has been given the name that is above every name. We belong to the one that has power over death. We belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so Paul in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 12 says, the saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him if we endure, speaking of suffering and trials and hardship, we will also reign with him. If you endure, you will reign with him. See, James and John's desire, it's not wrong. 
It's not wrong to want to to accomplish great things, even to reign with Jesus. But the greatest thing we have to offer this world is not our gifts, not our power, not our wisdom. It's our lives. And so as we lay down our lives in service of others, Jesus actually rules the world through us. If the cross is Jesus' throne, which that's the way scripture communicates it, that's his enthronement, that's his exaltation, then when we endure suffering because of Christ, Jesus rules the world through his people. That is how he rules. And so many of us have accomplished great things in life. Many of you have accomplished beautiful, wonderful things. Many of you are still yet to accomplish great things. But the greatest thing you have to, you have to offer this world is your lives. And James and John will eventually figure it out, as will the rest of the disciples. And like them, you and I are going to have to figure it out. We have to decide today, are we following Jesus because he can provide the life that the world values? Or are we following Jesus because he has provided resurrection life on the other side of death? And so church, ask today, be honest with God today. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Are you like James and John using Jesus to get the thing that you, that you truly desire? Or like Bartimaeus, do you just want to be restored? Do you just want, want life restored? Do you, do you want the, 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 the spiritual blindness in us to have its eyes open so that we can see Jesus clearly and follow him? Because the prayer of a humble, desperate person who just wants Jesus will be answered every time. Every single time, the desperate prayer of a man or woman who just wants to see Jesus will be answered every time. What do you want Jesus to do for you? And how you answer this question is going to depend on your motives. Pride and humility will lead to two very different missions. But Jesus invites us into his mission. He's called us to self-denial, sacrifice, and service, and love of others. And it's not the most comfortable life. I wish I, wish I could tell you, trust in Jesus and he'll make all your dreams come true but he will give you different dreams. He will give you different desires. There's that, that, that passage of scripture that people quote all the time, that delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And then after, after pursuing God for years, we, we often say like, God, I've delighted in you and you've not given me the desires of my heart. But here's the truth, is if we delight ourselves in the Lord, then he will be the desire of our heart. And as we pursue him, he changes our desires and causes us to desire different things so that when we receive the, the, our new desires, we do so with joy and gratitude. The desires that we have right now, he will not necessarily grant, but he will cause us to desire the things that he wants us to desire, ultimately himself, and he will give you himself. It's not necessarily the most comfortable life, but it is the greatest life imaginable. And so we serve our King by serving one another, by serving the world. And in this, the world will see that Jesus is the true King. 
Because the world serves money, wealth, fame, power, comfort, status, career, all of these things. The world will serve all of these things. And when they see a people collectively rebelling against the kingdoms of this world that tell us we need to have all of that because we're truly just delighted in Jesus, the world will know who the real king is. The world will see Jesus as the true king. So let's pursue this together and pray together. Father, we come, Lord, knowing, recognizing that you are the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The, the Jesus, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God, we know that our, our lives are submitted to you. And yet we get so distracted by all of the other shiny things. And so, Lord, I pray that today in, in humility, you would give us the, the spiritual eyes to see who you are, and that everything else would just pale in comparison, that you would be our greatest desire. And that, Lord, we would hear you calling us to great things, however that will look for each of us individually and the gifts that you've given us, but that we wouldn't shy away from from using our gifts in a way that might make us uncomfortable, that might bring persecution, might bring suffering, might bring trials, but Lord, we trust your spirit to help us to endure through that so that you will be seen as as king. God, help us to humbly submit ourselves to you as Bartimaeus and just receive restoration. God, if there's anyone here today who who doesn't know you and wants, wants to know you, Lord, in that that humble posture of desperation, Lord, we pray that you would answer their prayers today, that they would see you high and lifted up, that they would see you on the glorious throne, that they would acknowledge you as the King of kings and Lord of lords and and the, the, the Lord of their lives. And that they would submit to the, the life that you've called them to of loving you and, and loving others. And that together, God, as we, as we pursue this life together, that Carpinteria, the coastlands, and the nations would see who the real king of this universe is. And as the gospel goes forward and, and builds your church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Persecution and suffering and hardship will not have the last word. But you have given resurrection from the dead. Give us that confidence. Give us that boldness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.